In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul wrote, as the New King James renders it, test all things, hold fast what is good. The King James says, prove all things. Prove or test all things and then hold on to what is good. Tonight, we look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we continue our study of 1 John, the epistle of certainties, also, uh, also called the epistle of love, written by the one who is known as the apostle of love, because he wrote so much about that beautiful, beautiful subject of love. And in that text, under our consideration tonight, 1 John 4, 1 through 6, John specifies one area in which this testing about which Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 is to be conducted. He tells us it is to be the testing of the spirits. And the context makes it clear that the spirits are teachers. They are prophets in John's time. However, the admonition to test teachers and preachers is, is an admonition for all time until time is no more. And so in our study of these first six verses of 1 John 4, we're going to see that the testing method, of course, has changed since John's day. However, we must never become derelict in our duty to do the testing, to test the spirits using the infallible and inspired word of God. And so in verse one of First John 4, and if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them. We don't have the verses on the screen tonight. Beloved, John writes, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. As we said, the spirits under consideration here are human beings. They're not, uh, they're not spirits from the spirit world. They are human beings, that is, those who profess to teach the truth of God. And John stresses the importance of making sure these teachers are truly from God. In the first century, this testing of the spirits was done through one of the many miraculous gifts available and necessary in the early church. And I believe we've talked about it earlier in this series. There was the discerning of spirits, which was one of the Gifts, miraculous gifts, mentioned by the Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as we review those verses, which we looked at at an earlier time, as I recall, he writes in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, beginning, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. These are all in the miraculous context now. To another, faith, miraculous faith, that is the kind of faith necessary to do the healing that was done under New Testament times before the word of God was completed. So he says, to another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, and then he says, to another, discerning of spirits. And then he goes on to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, and then writes, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually 
as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So in that context of 1 Corinthians 12, he's enumerating several miraculous gifts that were available to the early church, needful in the early church, because they didn't have this. But remember the same writer, the Apostle Paul, one chapter later in 1 Corinthians 13, in the context of those miraculous gifts still, because the context of chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians are all in the context of miraculous gifts and the operation of those gifts and the utilization and the regulation of those gifts. Remember in the 13th chapter, he said, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. That's 1 Corinthians 13.10. And the context clearly indicates Paul is talking about miraculous gifts. When that which is in part that which is in part is done away, will be done away when that which is perfect or complete is the idea has come. I hold in my hand that which is complete. I hold in my hand that very thing to which Paul had reference by inspiration when he wrote those words in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10. And we've talked about that before. And so these uh, miraculous gifts are no longer available because they're no longer needed. But the discerning of spirits was an important gift of the Spirit in the early church because they did not have this standard by which to determine whether or not what they were being taught was the truth or not. And so there were some in the church who had the miraculous ability to actually make that determination. And so the testing of the spirits was done through one of these many miraculous gifts available and necessary in the early church not necessary today, not available today, because we have the all-sufficient, complete revelation of God in written form. And also, as John declared that many false prophets were present in his day, tragically, there are many false teachers in the world today. And we must make that determination by the standard that we use today. We'll talk more about that as we go further. In verse 2 then of 1 John chapter 4, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. That is, you know whether this is truly the, the Holy Spirit that is revealing these things. Then he shifts to that human spirit again, the human being, every spirit, every teacher, in other words, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Of God. That phrase, of God, appears several times in the first seven verses of chapter 4. Of God. How do we define of God? To be of God is having its origin with God. If something is of God, in other words, it has its origin with God. Today, there is but one way to know whether a doctrine that is being taught has its origin with God. How do we know whether a doctrine that someone is teaching has its origin with God? Only one way to know. It must come from the Word of God, particularly the New Testament the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, the testament to which we are all amenable and will be one day accountable as we stand before God and Christ in judgment. Now in John's day, and we've talked about this before in this series, in John's day there were Gnostics. There were Gnostics, the word Gnosis, 
the Greek word for knowledge. Thus, these were self-styled knowledgeable individuals, they claim. (coughs) They were individuals who claimed that that they had a special knowledge. But a part of their contention was that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh because a part of their, uh, their doctrine was that deity could not in any way come into direct contact with uh, humanity. In other words, that uh, was an impossibility. And so, because they believed that flesh and spirit were antagonistic to each other, that therefore deity could not actually inhabit flesh. And yet John clearly affirms that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 in his gospel account at verse 14. And remember we've mentioned before that there were two different sects of this Gnostic heresy that existed. One group was called the Serinthians and one was called the Docetics. The Docetics denied the humanity of Christ. They simply said Christ was never human. The Serinthians had a little different take. They made a distinction, the Serinthians did, between the man, Jesus, and the Christ, Jesus, alleging that Christ descended upon Jesus, the man, at his baptism, but left him at the cross. And, of course, it's totally nonsensical. But the late guy in Woods... And his commentary on 1 John well summarizes this Gnostic philosophy. He wrote, quote, Gnosticism, whether of the Docetic or Serinthian brand, was an admixture of paganism and corrupt Christianity. Basically, the theory regarded evil as an ever-present characteristic of matter, and its advocates were therefore unable to accept the doctrine of the Incarnation. The assumption of flesh on the part of the Lord on the ground that they believed it impossible for sinless deity to occupy a material body. In other words, deity just could not occupy a material body. That was an impossibility, according to them. Now, Brother Woods further details the devilish practice that grew out of their false doctrine. Here was the the consequence, if you will, of their false doctrine. The devilish practice, as he puts it. He writes, quote, "...inasmuch as they regarded their bodies as evil, they concluded that their spirits were independent of them, that is, independent of their body, and thus undefiled by them. They contended that once regenerated, they were pure in spirit, and it mattered not what the body did, since it was inherently evil anyway. They believed that it was inevitable that their bodies should sin." And they argued that a thorough understanding of these matters left them free to indulge in any course of action which they preferred. He goes on, it was this alleged superior knowledge which prompted them to style themselves the Gnostics. We know. We have a special knowledge. That special knowledge is that spirit and flesh are antagonistic. Once our spirits are regenerated then it matters not what our bodies do because what our bodies do cannot affect adversely our spirits. And as we said, that's nice work if you can get it because it means you can do anything you want to with your body and it'll never adversely affect your eternal salvation. And remember a doctrine in modern time to which we analogize this old doctrine of the Gnostic heresy in part? Once saved, always saved. It's much along the same line, isn't it? 
Once you are regenerated, the impossibility of apostasy advocates tell us, once you are regenerated, then you can never lose your eternal salvation. And so whatever you do with your body will not affect your eternal salvation. Isn't it one and the same thing in effect? The conclusion is obviously the same. Now, the impossibility of apostasy advocates will certainly tell you you ought to do right and you should want to do right. But whether you do right or not will not really affect your eternal salvation. One dodge they make is that if you don't do right, it means you were never saved to begin with. But isn't Simon the sorcerer a beautiful answer to that, to that quibble? Remember Simon the sorcerer? who believed when Philip came down and preached, and he had tricked the people for so long, and yet when he saw the real miracles, realized that obviously he knew he was a fake to begin with, and when he saw the real miracles, it got his attention, and he obeyed the gospel. Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized, and he continued with Philip. And then when he saw, when he saw, the apostles who came and laid hands to impart miraculous gifts, Peter and John, on others in order to help the work of the church, as we talked about the necessity of these miraculous gifts in the early church. When Peter and John came down and laid hands on Christians to impart miraculous gifts and Simon saw it, he wanted that same gift. And his heart was not right with God. But he became a Christian, didn't he? And yet he also became one who needed to repent. Repent of this thy wickedness. Repent, Peter told him. Your heart is not right before the Lord. Had he become a Christian? Yes. Was he saved? Yes. Was he then lost until he repented of his sins? Yes. Peter told him so by inspiration. And so Simon the sorcerer becomes a very clear response by example to those who claim that, well, if you do sin grievously after you have supposedly been saved it means you weren't saved to begin with Simon without question by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit we are told in the book of Acts that he was saved and then stood in need of repenting and praying that he might be forgiven of that sin well the Gnostics were very much like the modern-day doctrine of once saved always saved. And yet, the Bible, as it has always been able to do, can not only deal effectively with the error of its day, but anticipates and deals with error even in our day. That's the beauty of Scripture. But understanding the heresy that John faced in his day does help one to understand why this confession that, that he mentions was an acid test. Whoever confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, whoever makes that confession, why was that an acid test? Because it separated the heretics from the true heralds. It separated the heretics from the heralds of truth. It was this confession with everything that that confession involved, not just merely a confession of the lips, but a confession with everything that it entailed that separated the faithful proclaimer from the false prophet. And today, it is not confession with the lips alone that determines faithfulness. 
but it is the life that comports with that confession. You know, there are many today who claim to be led by the Spirit of God. But as stated earlier, the acid test to be applied to their contentions now is what? What about this? Does this book comport with their confession? And John, in his second epistle, remember, in 2 John 10 and 11, wrote, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deed. And that's a sobering passage that tells us that in John's day, there was a warning against bidding God's speed to those who were teaching error. And thus, in every generation, for as long as time stands, that warning stands. That warning is still effective. We must not bid God's speed. That, way, uh, that is, we must not in any way encourage the teaching or endorse the false teaching or the false teacher. Now, of course, in John's day, to greet him or to bring him into one's house helped the false teacher because they didn't have motels and hotels like we do today, so a lot of these people were dependent upon the hospitality of individuals in order to uh, expedite their journeys and thus to expedite their teaching. And John says, don't you in any way expedite the teaching of a false teacher? Not at all. Well, we're not to do anything that would be equivalent to that ourselves today to encourage false teachers. And when we have congregations that invite known false teachers to speak, then certainly... That's a very serious matter, and a matter that we cannot ignore. And then verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Notice it again. Every spirit, this is the human being again now, the teacher, the false prophet, or prophet, or teacher. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. There's our phrase, of God, again, that is used time and again in these first seven verses. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Well, you've heard a lot, no doubt, in your lifetime about the Antichrist. And you've heard the Antichrist uh, being attributed that particular term to uh, all sorts of individuals down through time. Hitler and Saddam Hussein and uh, any number of people perhaps uh, have been termed by some as being the Antichrist. Well, what does the scripture teach about this? Well, in John 1.14, the apostle declared that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Capital W, the eternal word. Anyone who denies that deity actually became flesh and walked among men, as we've said, cannot be a true proclaimer of the truth of God. Now again, the Gnostics in John's day were those who denied the possibility of de deity being able to dwell in a fleshly body. How does John identify this whole thing? How does he identify it? He says, this spirit 
or this attitude, he identifies as the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, that's the way the New King James renders it. The spirit of the Antichrist, capital A. The King James, interestingly, renders the phrase, quote, that spirit of Antichrist. And there are two significant differences there. The spirit of the Antichrist, New King James, that spirit of Antichrist, King James, notice the the is left off in the King James before the word Antichrist. And also, if you're looking at the King James and the New King James, you will see that the New King James capitalizes the word Antichrist. The King James does not capitalize the word Antichrist. And other translations also fail to capitalize Antichrist, the word Antichrist, and they also omit the definite article. Well, that does, uh, that does make some difference, doesn't it? The spirit of the capital Antichrist or that spirit or attitude of what? Antichrist, the Antichrist attitude. Which is it? Well, John refers also to Antichrist in the plural. In the plural. Back in chapter 2... And we t- uh, looked at that when we were studying that. But go back with me to 1 John chapter 2 at verse uh, 18. And notice there, when John refers to Antichrist there, he does so in the plural. And the New King James renders it with a little a there. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, that's capital A in the New King James, is coming, even now many Antichrists, little a, have come, by which we know that that it is the last hour. So John speaks of Antichrist in the plural in that verse, chapter 2, verse 18, and that leads many commentators to conclude that John, as he wrote about Antichrist, did not have one particular person in mind as the Antichrist, but that he meant an attitude or a spirit among many false teachers of his day. In other words, these many false teachers had an Antichrist spirit. They had a spirit that was anti-Christ, that was against Christ. We know that is valid, that an Antichrist spirit is valid because John, in 1 John 2.18, clearly refers to, to it in that sense. But does he also refer to a specific individual? Well, others identify the Antichrist, the Antichrist, with Paul's man of sin. You remember over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote about the man of sin, the coming of the lawless one. Uh, The coming of the lawless one, verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians 2, One is according, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, uh, etc. And so the man of sin is referred to by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. And some equate the Antichrist, the Antichrist, with the man of sin that Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians 2. But there is no question that there is a spirit of Antichrist about which John writes, at least that, and that anyone who will not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh has that spirit. That is, he has that attitude. But John goes on in verse 4 to write, You are of God, little children, 
and, ho and have overcome them. You're not like them. You are, and there's our phrase, of God again. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because, listen to it, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who, is, who was in them? God. God in them. Does God dwell in us? Yes. We've looked at other passages that uh, make it abundantly clear that the scriptures teach that God is in us. What about Christ? Is Christ in us? Yes. Christ is in us, so the Ephesian letter says, by faith. Uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1 and verse 27. Uh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, Ephesians 3, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Therefore, Christ, if he's in our hearts by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of God, Christ is in our hearts by what? The word of God and through the word. How is God in us? Same way. And we've asked before, how is the Holy Spirit in us? Oh, some would say, and that's different now. You've gone into something different. Why so? God is a personality, Christ is a personality, the Holy Spirit is a personality. If God is in us through the Word, Christ is in us through the Word, why do I suddenly contend that the Holy Spirit is in me in some other way other than through that same Word? When it is the Holy Spirit, that member of the Godhead, who himself has been the revelator of the Word. He's the one that has revealed the Word to us. And yet, many want a better felt than told, direct operation of the Spirit etc., when it comes to how the Holy Spirit is in us. You are of God because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, and so you can overcome them. Is that true of us today? Of course it is. We have, we have available to us, and thus the possibility of putting it into us, that which can assist us and enable us to overcome the world. What is it? Right here it is. When this is in me, can I say that God is in me? Yes. When this is in me, can I say that Christ is in me? Yes. When this is in me, can I say the Holy Spirit is in me? Yes. Accommodatively, through what? Through the instrumentality of the Word. In other words, the Holy Spirit is influencing me through this Word. And yes, we can read in Scripture where the Holy Spirit miraculously affected individuals, but we've already seen, as we've already alluded to it earlier in the lesson tonight, that that time has come and gone when the miraculous gifts of the Spirit were available. And when the gift of the Spirit, Acts 2.38, as I believe it to be miraculous, no longer is needful nor available to us because we have everything that we need. Notice in this verse 4, too, that John affectionately addresses his, quote, little children. His little children in the faith, he loved them dearly, and he commends them highly for resisting the spirit of Antichrist that was threatening them. And he attributes their ability to resist the false teaching to God's presence in them, and he declares God's superior power over the prince of the darkness of this world, Satan. And so, yes, we have, we do have a different kind of spirit other than the human spirits that are talked about by John. We do have the devil and his angels. We do have a spirit world. We do have a spirit world against which we are fighting. But John tells us right here, you can overcome 
those forces of Satan. You can overcome because greater is he that is in you than he who is in this world. And so he cannot overcome you unless you allow it. Today the child of God must have God in him to overcome Satan and his forces. Satan has angels. Satan, Satan is working overtime, if you will, to overthrow. But today, the child of God, who has God in him through God's all-powerful and all-sufficient word, can be successful in his battle against the principalities and powers in heavenly places, that is, in spiritual realms, in the spiritual world. Well, that's where, that's where the angels of God operate, isn't it? And that's where the angels of Satan obviously operate. But the point is, Christ in his sacrifice took care of the battle once and for all, if you will, in that he overcame Satan in his death, burial, and resurrection, and thus makes it possible for all of us through him to overcome Satan. But that's the key. Through him and in him, we can do that with full assurance and absolute confidence that there's nothing Satan can do. Oh yes, he's that roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is subtle. He transforms himself into angels of light as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He does all sorts of things, uses false religion to his full advantage. No doubt his greatest tool because he gives people the kind of false security that will keep them from looking for and accepting the truth. Oh yes, he has tremendous tools. But despite his arsenal, despite everything he has in his arsenal, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that's God. And then verse 5, he says, they are of the world. These false teachers, these antichrists, those who are the, of the spirit of the antichrist, they are of the world. They're worldly. Therefore, they speak, uh, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. You think that's happening today? Are there any false teachers out here? Are any false teachers out in the world who are of the world, and the world is hearing them in great numbers? You can go to Houston, Texas, and you can see where the Rockets used to play basketball, where now people gather to hear a man tell them false doctrine. Is that successful? Is that successful? Thousands, thousands flock to hear it. And you can name any number of very well-known denominational teachers down through the years, some still living, some gone, who have drawn huge followings and tragically led many precious souls astray. They are of the world, and they speak as of the world, and the world hears them because what they say, what they say, is very palatable, very appealing to those to whom they preach. 
The false prophets of John's day taught worldly doctrine that could not save the souls of those who heard it. And tragically, that trend continues to this very moment in time among those who reject the commandments of God in favor of a more pleasing and popular worldly teaching. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 at verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And then in Mark 7 and verse 9, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And that is tragically happening all over the world today. And such teaching may be successful in terms of the increasing numbers of those who embrace it, but it will lead its adherents, however sincere they may be, to eternal ruin. How can I know that? Because I have this. And what I also must know is that I must never lose my love of hearing the pure gospel of Christ. Nor should you ever lose your love for hearing the pure gospel of Christ. You need to insist that it be preached in love, but that it be preached in its purity and its simplicity and its completeness. And we need to love that pure gospel. And finally, verse 6 with which we close tonight. We are of God, John writes. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The pronoun we is in the emphatic and it, it draws a contrast between those who are included in its scope and the false teachers John mentioned earlier. In other words, he's saying we, emphasis, we are of God. We are of God. And likely that we includes John and the other apostles primarily, but certainly it would be true of all who loved and taught the truth, wouldn't it? And those who love the truth will be receptive to it. Those who love the truth will be appreciative of it. Those who love the world will reject and oppose it. And that's what we face even today. Now, notice the latter part of this verse. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In some translations, the word spirit there is capitalized. In other words, by this we know the capital spirit, and so the translators believe that was a reference to the Holy Spirit. They believe the Holy Spirit to be in view there. I do not believe so. I believe the context indicates that spirit there describes an attitude or a disposition toward the truth. In other words, by this we know the spirit of truth, the attitude toward truth, and by this we know the spirit of error. Spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. Attitude toward truth versus attitude toward error. The context, to me, indicates that we're talking about an attitude here. And if that's true, then here we have a very sobering reminder of the importance of approaching our study of the Word of God openly and honestly without prejudice. The spirit of error versus the spirit of truth will determine how we approach this book and how we come away from that approach. And so these first six verses of 1 John we've studied tonight 
Remind us of the ongoing urgent need to do what? Test the spirits, John says. Jesus declared, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And then in the verses following Matthew 7, 15, Jesus gave the basis upon which we may know them. What did he say? It is by their fruits. By their fruits you shall know them. The late and lamented Marshall Keeble said, I'm not a judge, I'm a fruit inspector. And that's what we're to be. We must diligently inspect the fruit, that is the teaching of men, and make sure it comes from the only tree that can give us life eternal. That's the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in that testament tonight, if you're outside of Christ, you can be in Christ because how you get into Christ is clearly set forth in this New Testament. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24. Repent of your sins or perish. Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus and He'll confess you before the Father. Matthew 10, 32. And be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. From that watery grave you rise to walk in newness of life. With this as the only guide you ever need, by which you may know how you ought to walk and by which you may determine whether what you're being taught is truth or error. If you need to come home to your first love tonight, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.